I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Ethan Warren. And we love to watch. We love to watch demands to know why all these Muppets are so horny. Moving right along in search of good times and good news. With good friends you can't lose. This could become a habit. Opportunity knocks once. Let's reach out and grab it. Yeah. Together we'll nab it. We'll hitchhike bus or yellow cabin. Cabin? <laughs> uh, hey, Peter. Hey, Ethan. Hey. How are you doing? I thought that, like, Meet the Feebles and whatever that weird Melissa McCarthy movie was from a few years ago uh, were, uh, you know, really stretching the idea of a horny puppet uh, from the Muppet idea. But then I saw this movie and I was like, I think half the movie is about Muppets <laughs> trying to fuck, talking were about you? past fuckscapades. Let me ask you a question, Peter. Were you horny watching it? Was that the Absolutely. problem? You're just picking up shades of uh, Muppet horniness and it's all in green. Got Mm -hmm. it. Uh, Yeah, so this is a new month for us. It is November and we have not named this month uh, because uh, we haven't put that much thought into it yet because we're recording it a little bit early. Uh, So I don't know. How about... uh uh, Movember. Muppets Muppets Take We Love to Watch. Muppets Take We Love to Watch. Yeah, that's. I mean, we're not covering that movie. So it feels... (laughs) Muppets Take November. There we go. That's the name. It'll be on all of our publicity material in late October. Uh, but yeah, so this is this is the first uh, first week of a new month where we love to watch. We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme and we do movies around that theme. And it is Muppets Take November, apparently. And we're doing the Muppet movie. Now, if you are like, whoa, 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 back it up. Um, we still have one more week of Spooktober recap. To tell how we finished up the month. Uh, I don't know, Peter. Let's say I watched 101 movies and you watched 100. <laughs> Sound good? <laughs> yeah, that's a good agreement. Beat you this I, year? I, um, I'm going to call my number this year. I'm just going to shot call it. I'm going to say 47. Ooh, I was mentally thinking. I did way too much last year. You still fucking beat me. Yeah, um, but again, we, well, every, recently, every doing more than like... Yeah. 25 to 30 is it's, not a It's too much. You end up anymore. not remembering the movies. You end up not enjoying movies. Uh, yeah. It's so a funny way to like, be like to watch a movie four years later and be like, yeah, oh, I saw this during that one month where I watched where everything movies every, and I hated all the last 30 of them. <laughs> everything melts together. Uh, it's also the only month of the year where I wish a kid on Peter someday so that I can beat him. Mm-hmm. Um, I just said I just said all... All October going, man, I hope him and his wife someday stop using protection in their sexual escapades so that uh, down the line I'll be able to beat him in movie watching. Uh, this is a unique curse that you have the ability to cast. Um, hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. It's been four years. Have no you considered kid. cursing people that actually want children? Yeah. Well, Ethan keeps having kids. I think my uh, I think my curse is getting deflected. But anyway, I'm just imagining you, Aaron, sitting there on like October fourth, just staring into space, and your wife's like, "What are you thinking about, honey?" And you're just grumbling. I hope someday Peter stops using protection. Broken <laughs> condoms. That's what I'm thinking of. So yeah, so what we will do, if you are looking for kind of our uh, follow up to our Spooktober. Uh, ending how we ended the month we'll release a special episode especially epi of peter and i walking through that just the two of us uh because we are recording this early to kind of uh prep for the rest of uh the year and uh some fun plans we have for um 
for November and December. And also, I think Peter's going on his honeymoon sometime in January. So we gotta, we gotta crank these out early. There's no PTO. Uh, and we love to watch uh, land. It also means that this is actually going to be the second time you're going to hear Ethan this month. And I'll let him introduce himself and give him his credentials and all that kind of fun stuff. But uh, we are recording two at the beginning of September. Our episodes uh, are on the Muppet movie, followed next week by The Muppets with Douglas Lamont. And then we're taking a little Muppet detour with Sesame Street uh, Presents Follow That Bird with Joey Lee. And then we're wrapping up the month again with Ethan, which we won't record till November. So we'll talk to him here again very shortly and find out how much he's changed in two months uh, to do the Muppet Christmas Carol. I had uh, messaged Ethan and said, you seem like the type of person that loves the Muppets. Uh, He said I was right. And I gave him a choice between the Muppet movie and Muppet Christmas Carol. And he said, why do you hate me? This is the meanest thing anyone's ever done. (laughs) And so I said, you know what? That you're right. That was unfair. How would you like to come on to talk about both of them? So we will talk to Ethan again here at the end of this month. But before we do that, we have this whole episode. And Ethan, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, hey, um, you know, I just want to say right off the bat, I'm so glad that you guys are doing Follow That Bird because I love that movie almost as much as i love this movie so i'm glad that you're finding the space for it i feel like it's a little under discussed so that's i I agree and you know it's actually funny just today alamo draft house is doing uh alamo all ages a follow that bird uh so i just bought tickets uh at the end of september here uh to go to take both of my children to it to see it in theaters and it'll probably be a more surreal uh, conversation or a, more, a funnier conversation when we actually watch the movie later this month. Um, yeah. But uh, that was the one as a kid I like scorched a VHS because I watched it so many times. Yeah. Like it was it, it was basically just like wh- like a white tape at a certain point because I just it, it faded over so much. Yeah, it was the first movie I saw in theaters. I was about two and a half, and like uh, probably I think the first movie I at least owned and recognized that I owned. So, uh, yeah. I did not technically introduce myself. You said introduce yourself and I said here are some opinions about Follow That Bird, which is how it's important. I introduce myself in yeah. most contexts. Uh, <laughs> the first half, it's the first side of your business card and then the <laughs> rear and the bottom right hand side has your name and such. As Ask me about Sesame Street Presents Follow That Bird. Exactly. And um, then you only list six phone numbers because you just weren't paying attention. <laughs> So, uh, I'm Ethan Warren, and I have been on this show, like, three or four times before, I think. Um, it just, you know, it, it all just blurs together in, into one big fuzzy happy memory with you boys. Um, and I am a senior editor at Brightwall Dark Room, uh, which is an online film journal, where we publish um, long read essays, sometimes very, very long read essays, uh, three times a week. Very, 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 if, if it's uh, me. <laughs> and uh, increasingly. And I'm also the writer-director of West of Her, which is an uh, independent movie that you can find on Amazon Prime. And uh, as I was posting about on Twitter recently, uh, a lot of the time on YouTube, uh, where pirates like to label it a Hallmark romance movie, which is <laughs> deeply uh, upsetting to me, even more so than, than the fact that the movie is being pirated, because that's just the way of the world. But like, do you have Should to we cover it? Well, so so we're in December. I don't know if in the context of where time will be, if we've announced it yet, but we're doing Hallmark Lifetime and Netflix Christmas movies for December. December. So, 
Uh, if we read the mislabeling right, we could cover West of Her. You, could, <laughs> you can do that for your bootleg pirated movies that they yeah. say are Hallmark. I guess it is Christmas. It had to be Christmas themed. Yeah, I was so when you, I, I was so baffled by that that uh, moment. Not just because it doesn't fit the Hallmark moniker, but because like. <laughs> That has to be a surreal experience where you're like, okay, I can get someone not liking the movie. I can get someone really liking the movie. I can never get someone thinking this is a Hallmark movie or choosing to rebrand it on YouTube so more people watch it as a Hallmark movie. You're like, huh, 500,000 views. Uh, maybe I should apply to the Hallmark channel? I know. Well, everybody goes to YouTube for their Hallmark movie fix. That's where all the, like, Chardonnay moms are, you know, going to kick back at the end of the day with a good You're going to make a lot riff. of Chardonnay moms cry, and you should be proud of yourself. I already am proud of myself for how many moms I've made cry, but that's a different situation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, as a question I'm sure you love answering, when's uh, when's the follow-up film? When's the sophomore slump coming? <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, I've, I've kind of moved away from it. Like, um, I have two kids now and I'm, you know, happily established in the suburbs and you know, the way I describe that whole process of writing, directing, producing a movie is is that you know on the bad days it was like pushing a rock uphill and on the good days it was like pushing a rock on a flat surface and you know it was that for like <laughs> six years every day and you know it's it's just kind of something that doesn't really fit into my sort of life right now um so i'm, I'm really enjoying being kind of one of the few people that goes from like creator of the thing to critic of the thing you know much much more commonly yeah. it's like you know the whole model with like the french new wave guys like they were all critics first and then they you know took all that and applied it to making the thing and it is you know an uncommon position to be in where like actually making it gave me so much understanding of and kind of love for the art form and then i was like but i'm totally done with that and now <laughs> i can apply all of that and and it's well, you know to be on a, a little rant because I I don't have any other outlet for this. <laughs> it puts me in this weird position of being so uh, frustrated when I see people being like, well, if any critic ever actually made something, then like they you know would never you know shit on any piece of art again because they'd see how hard it was. Like okay, def person defending probably the Suicide Squad, right? And it's it's like <laughs> I that is that is such sort of a straw man bullshit fallacy because it, it if nothing else has made me so aware of like how kind of expensive and <laughs> it is to make a movie and how much you're asking of other people and it's it's given me so much more sort of awe and respect for the people that can put that to good use and and so much more sort of like what the fuck are you doing for the people who you know put out some piece of garbage so it's a it's a fallacy that bothers me every time I see it on Twitter, and I see it a lot. So I'm putting this. Yeah, well, right especially here if you're right on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. You know what? It's uh, maybe you're like a Malik situation. I said that some of the shots reminded me of like Days of Heaven when I saw the, uh, your movie. So maybe in 20 years you'll have a thin red line situation. I mean, that, comes up. that would be fantastic. Hopefully the kids will be out of the house by then. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so thank you so much for coming back on again, and we're going to talk about something that is probably, like, I feel like if you are a person who is a good person, you probably like the Muppets, and I don't know a, a worse way to frame that up. 
But I kind of also secretly believe it and now not so secretly believe that, like, if you don't like – and I don't like if you like every Muppet thing, like – there's a lot of crap, um, and we're not going to really be talking about that crap. But when they started doing – when Disney bought them and they started doing some of those made-for-TV movies. But I think at its core – The ABC like, TV show, the like primetime sitcom that was uh, like, I never wa- – I couldn't even watch an episode I, of that. I mean, I feel um, like I maybe watched about 10 minutes of one of them and was just like, this is such a profound bummer. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, I'm glad that we have, like, uh, I think the second best – or, yeah, I, I do think the second best or the, – there's three of them that are basically, like, all kind of tied for me as my favorite Muppet movie. But it is great that in 2011 we got a an amazing Muppet movie that we're going to talk about next week. Um, and I think the follow-up was pretty good. Um, not near the level of the of the the 2011 The Muppets, but Muppets Most Wanted has some really good songs and is a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, it is. I, I do like. There's like certain things that I, at the very least, would be skeptical of you as a person if you didn't have some level of affection for it. And I I think those things are uh, mostly Muppet related, but. Um, but it's the Muppets, it's Sesame Street, and it's Mr. Rogers. Like, there is in all three of those things a level of a wholesomeness and, like, a, almost like an ethos for living your life that if if you think they're bad, I'm going to be at least somewhat skeptical of you as a person. And I think um, Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers fall a lot more into, like, things that children watched. And the Muppets was, like... You know, growing out of that a little bit and still finding both familiar friends, but also like a little bit of uh, more danger in your comedy, especially if you started watching uh, the Muppets uh, in like the Muppet show that was on uh, Nick at Night reruns when I was a kid. Um, and then also, uh, I think this this was definitely the first Muppet movie I watched as well. I was kind of blown away at how uh, how adult it was and we'll talk more about that uh when we get into the actual movie but yeah like i i feel like asking someone when's the first time you experienced the muppets is kind of a loaded question because muppets just feel omnipresent as a child but what is your guys relationship with the muppets in general like do they do they hold that kind of like uh don't fuck with the muppets mentality like are they are they weirdly like a defining characteristic that you use to judge people like me <laughs> um no I, I don't filter people into different camps based on on whether or not they like muppets but i i do think that it's something that uh similar to the simpsons or um i don't even know i feel like simpsons is the only thing i can think of that really connects on that level where um it speaks to a deepness of of connection where like not just we've had the same experience but we've had decades of the same experience we've yeah whoa there's there's something so um because it targeted so many age groups and the fact that uh you know some muppet stuff like the muppet babies or whatever talked to me when i was a child and then stuff like follow that bird or um, and, and basically any Muppets property talked to me when I got a little bit older as I transitioned out of Sesame Street stuff. Uh, there was plenty of funny Muppet movies for me to, to jump onto. Even when I hated musicals, a, a Muppet Christmas Carol existed. Like it kind of was there for 
it existed and could be there for me, you know, in all of its its dorky, sweet, actually very hip, funny glory. Um, yeah. For for most of my life, and uh, yeah, I feel like at the end of the month, I'll probably have more profound stuff to say about why. But like, because a lot of times when it's boiled down to it, like I just feel like a kid when I'm watching it. Like that's it's it's not that. It's not that deep, but it's also very deep because it, it nothing really touches me that way except for, like, some Simpsons stuff. So for me, it, it it's funny you mentioned uh, the Muppet Babies so kind of offhand because that, like, really is the urtext for me. <laughs> I feel Do like... Do you know they rebooted it? I, I have yeah, seen, it's, it's, uh, it, like, the, the advertising for that, but I've never watched any of it. I haven't um, watched it either, my, but I just my think kids, that's funny. My kids love it. It's sort of good. Like, it's 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 worthwhile. Like, that, that show was you. in my life so early that I feel like I am aware of Star Wars and Indiana Jones first through yeah. the opening credits to that. Like, there's, like, a TIE fighter uh, in the Muppet yeah. uh, Baby's opening credits. And, and they, they run away from the boulder from Raiders. Exactly. Too. And I, I'm sure that was the first time I was exposed to either of those images. Yeah. Um, and only now That's am so I kind of thinking that it's – so two Lucasfilm properties and, and Jim Henson, all now Disney uh, properties – um, which is, you know, just yeah. a depressing thing to bring us all down for a second. Um, and Especially then, since, like, they were they tried so long to sell it off, sell off this property, and then it, they didn't manage to do it when when Henson was alive. And then, oh, you know, a couple decades passed, and suddenly that money looks a lot more appealing. Yeah. Um, and then I was also, I guess, the right age for um, – there was, like – a 90s reboot of of the Muppet oh, show. Oh, Muppet, Muppets Tonight. Yes, and I yep. remember loving that as a kid. Yep, um, it was very good. Yeah, I feel like it, it kind of did sort of capture the spirit of the old show um, while still kind of appealing to a, you know, 90s uh, kid sensibility. Um, yeah, because you get like Garth Brooks as like <laughs> guest hosts. Yeah, but like seeing how they have, have sort of fumbled in, in trying to bring the property back to tv since then it's it is you know why why would you not look to that model again i think they just yeah. today as when we're recording this um have uh they like, canceled yeah something. scrapped a planned uh disney plus show and it's like why do you not just get that like and as is the case with this movie the muppets are about putting on a show and just get them backstage at uh you know I mean, and, and that's what the the uh, 2011 movie, or if that is yeah. indeed the year, um, is about. It's, it's just this spirit of like get them backstage, get them putting together a show. And now I'm hesitating because I think that is the premise of the the ABC show from a couple of years ago. Was they were trying to put on a talk show, a variety show, but it was but it was like backstage, and it was like office style, right? Like right. mockumentary. It was a mockumentary, which, which is is not is not a terrible idea. And I had heard that the show started out pretty dire and got better. Like, they changed some writers and they figured out, like, like on paper, that doesn't sound like a terrible idea that you couldn't make work, right? Like a 30 Rock, but with Muppets? Yeah, and, it, but I, I, again, I get, I guess, hold on, let me say that again. Um, I guess from, like, I remember reading reviews that it found its voice and, like, the comedy in it halfway through, but by that point, no one, uh, no one was watching. Uh, I, I think that the problem with the Muppets and why it's been so hard to consistently make good Muppet work post Frank Oz and Jim Henson 
like being involved is that you kind of have to balance three things. You have to balance um, truly like surrealistic, absurdist humor. Well, um, you have to balance um, almost like anti-comedy, which wasn't really a thing back then. But like one of the things that the Muppets does well is like it has all these jokes that are very purposely not funny. And the joke is that they're not funny, right? Like that's Fozzie's whole bit. There's so (laughs) many characters that are constantly saying things, uh, Gonzo, that are like, and a lot of times in this movie, too, like, characters come and I'm like, oh, okay, that one was pretty good. Um, but it recognizes that there's humor in uh, in kind of earnest joking that is very much not funny. The old vaudeville thing. I feel like almost none of the jokes are del- – now that I'm thinking about it, it, it doesn't really show in the Muppet movie. But because uh, Kermit has a lot of, like, just straight up, like, funny one-liners. But a yeah. lot of the jokes are delivered at, at an askew angle. They're either anti-jokes or they're meta-jokes. Or, yeah. They're, or surrealist, right? Yeah. Or they're sort of groany dad jokes on purpose. Yeah. And so – but I think I think you have to, to – so I think you have to balance the two different kinds of – of humor and maybe it's three but really it's the it's the meta aspect it's the surrealistic aspect which i'm kind of putting in one bucket because they a lot of times overlap and then you have to do the anti-comedy the dad joke stuff and then third i think you have to have a level of within that you have to have a level of heartwarmingness and sincerity and i think when muppet properties fail it's because it doesn't get a good balance of those three things. Like uh, the ABC specials, uh, the It's a Very Muppet Christmas Carol and uh, – or It's a Very Muppet Christmas and the Muppet Wizard of Oz are really good examples of uh, ones that lean way too heavily into the anti-comedy corny dad jokes and then try to tack on like unearned sentiment at the end. Um, but the the – the Muppets were never, like, truly, fully, I think, corny sentimental. I think it was sincere, wearing kind of your dreams on your sleeve sentimental. And it's so... It's a secular human. It's thing. very, like... Like, yeah. we'll, get in, we'll get into Jim Henson, but, like, that was his yeah. shtick, was, like, I, I, being a person is incredibly difficult. Being a moral yep. person is even harder. <laughs> and, and being a moral person with hope is the hardest thing of all, and you still have to fucking try. <laughs> yeah, and I, I do really think that that balance of all those different aspects is what makes the best Muppet properties good. It makes... The Muppet movie, Great Muppet Caper, Muppets Take Manhattan. It makes, uh, you know, Muppet Christmas Carol, the the Muppet show, which is incredibly strong episode by episode. Uh, I know they only ever released the first three seasons, so I still would like um, to watch all the episodes for season four and five. Uh, if Disney ever feels like releasing all that stuff. But like it was an incredibly consistent show. And uh, and then Jason Siegel kind of cap- captured very well in 2011's The Muppets. But um, – you're right, because it was so much – and we'll talk about this movie too. Like this movie wasn't directed by Henson or Oz. It apparently was a complete nightmare to work on because the 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 director, who I'm forgetting the name, it was his only movie. He had worked primarily in TV and worked afterwards in TV as well. But they realized very quickly that we they cannot have someone who directs any one of their movies that doesn't understand uh, puppetry. And, uh, and, I, and I think that – when this is the Muppets are so much a creation um, 
And the Muppets in this context, uh, like the the Muppets, are so much a cre- creation of Henson with with input from Oz that it's people that have tried to create afterwards, I think, are like – they like one of those things about the Muppets and they just push so fucking heavily into it that they they miss what makes the Muppets special. And then you have constantly these things where reboots aren't working, movies aren't working, television shows get scrapped because people go, yeah, I, everyone watches it and goes, I don't see that Muppet magic. and and But no one quite understands why they can't quite get it. And I think it's just an incredibly tough needle to thread. I have to say, really quickly, uh, you nailed something that I didn't quite realize. And I think this month, like... The Muppets are very often something that I have an un- unobserved love for, which is rare. Like, I, I cannot turn off the analytical mind when I'm watching this shit. Even shit that, like, like The Simpsons was the only thing I can compare, compare it to. Or Pixar films. Like, I'm looking at the structure. Like, I, I very much, this these movies disarm me in a very specific way. But um, you touched on something that I think uh, explains why Muppets Most Wanted is kind of a mixed effort. And, and that's that uh, you have, you said that there's like a sincere sentimentality to it and it's not corny. Um, in Muppets Most Wanted, I can't attach myself to Ricky Gervais. Um, and I, and uh, Tina Fey is uh, doing that like weird Russian accent and like is kind of she's too much on screen to be like a cameo but not enough like there's there's no character except for kermit for me to attach to and there's not that much kermit and they actually leaned too hard into the um the meta humor with the muppets which was very they're very funny don't get me wrong but they didn't leave enough well muppets were in the muppets but they didn't leave enough room for that, that. They weren't the problem with the movie. It's that they leaned into that sort of stuff and the cameos, and they didn't leave enough room for like, oh, I genuinely care about this character. There wasn't enough room for me to care about Kermit, except for like, I didn't want him to get hurt. Like, and that's, that's a very base level uh, kind of thing. Like, there's not a whole lot of room for me to have sentimentality at that point. Yeah, it has too much of the Constantine character, right? Like the. The evil twin then takes his place, which also just disrupts the whole flow of the Muppets because you have an evil Kermit for like the length of a movie. And then you have other Kermit in prison um, in the gulag. Um, Ironically, it's my – so I I took Maya through all the Muppet movies like a year ago because she was getting really into them. It's weirdly her favorite Muppet movie, Muppets Most Wanted. Um we all want different I th- things. I mean, when I was her age, it was it was definitely Muppet Babies, and I don't think Muppet Babies threads that line of uh, intelligent meta humor. And no. you know, it's a different no, expression. Well, I, it's a different expression of, of of what they're doing. She's she's fascinated by that. There's a bad Kermit, so I think that's I don't know what that says about her. Yeah, Ethan, what do you think? Well, what do you think about uh, what may, what constitutes the Muppets, and what what do you think? Uh, do you think that that's a pretty good summation of of what 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 they were working on, what levels they were working on, or what, where are you feeling about this? I I would love to kind of put forth my very sort of still forming um, grand unified theory on on the Muppets and and kind of what. I think is the, is the precise balance that is struck at least in, in the ones that speak to me. Um, and that is, is something I've been thinking about is kind of what the movie presumes the audience's worldview is. And I think the best work for kids. And I, and I do think, you know, the Muppets are, you know, often speak very much to adults, but 
you know, it's it's a kid's property, and so that's kind of how I, I gauge the success or failure of, of, of any iteration is do kids connect to it um, sort of on an intuitive level? And I think the best Muppet stuff is aligned with Mr. Rogers, is aligned with Miyazaki, which who is someone else that I watch yeah. a lot of with my daughter. And it's it's this sense that the best sort of Miyazaki movies and the best Muppet properties speak to kids presuming a kid's worldview and then add stuff on from there. So, and, and in the, I think the worst properties that's somehow out of whack or the worst, worst iterations of this, this property. So like the Muppet movie is so intuitive. It's you've got Kermit is the good guy. Hopper is the bad guy. Kermit's got to get from point A to point B and he's got to get away from the bad guy and he's got to stick with his friends. And that is so intuitive to kids. And and so is just the idea of, of we're going to put on a show, which, as I mentioned, is, mm-hmm. is present. Um, all my daughter ever wants to do is put on a show. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, onto that framework. It's always a streetcar, which is kind of weird, know. but I guess <laughs> it is the daughter of a playwright. And she plays Stanley. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... It's then onto that framework, um, the simple sort of A to B road movie of it, they layer all of this very sort of sophisticated meta humor and, um, you know, stuff you don't usually see in a kid's movie, a lot of Hare Krishna jokes. And then, <laughs> and so I watched this with my daughter a couple of months ago and she loved it. I think her one comment was Kermit is a good name for a frog. Uh, just <laughs> and then the next week, seven days later, we watched the great Muppet caper and she couldn't handle it. It like threw yeah. her into kind of an existential tailspin because she couldn't grab onto it. She's two. She's going to be three in a month. So she by now is three by the time you're listening to this. Um, <laughs> happy birthday. Yeah. yeah happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and what the Great Muppet Caper does is it flips, I think, the balance that I was talking about. It it yeah. presumes an adult worldview and then kind of tries to move that towards kids. So the Muppet Caper presumes that you know what a jewel heist is and what investigative yeah. journalism is. <laughs> and and you, yeah, that's you a really good point. Bring that down to kids' level just by having yeah. Muppets in it. What you can do is take a kid's worldview like the Muppet movie and bring it to an adult level. You know, yeah, no, I I think that's a really good point. Um, I didn't even when I went through the full watch of like Muppet stuff, I just saved the Great Muppet Caper because I I was worried it would be a little bit too complicated. And the one she bounced off the most was actually a Muppet Christmas Carol. Um, she liked the songs, but I do think that that is um on the whole like a very like complex morality tale. Uh, of like ghosts and time travel and viewing your past and stuff like that. And it so, is like, like a pretty fair ad- – I mean, it is a pretty fair adaptation of the original yeah. story. It doesn't well, kidify well, <laughs> it too, too much. Um, we're we'll we're going to get but... to this. We're going to get to this, but yeah. A Muppet Christmas Carol is the best adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Agreed. It's number Absolutely. one. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stake that claim here. I've seen a lot of them. It's, it's one of my favorite books and – this is why I said I need to do that episode too. Is is yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna like overtake your show on that one. So we'll, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so it it doesn't because yeah. uh, it came from a perspective not like okay we can jump on the story everyone knows. It came from the perspective of like well just think, it, this might be the first time you're hearing this story. So let's start from ground zero. And they actually like 
they tell they tell the story really really well um yeah they do and i would actually say even muppet treasure island i think they tell the story well and my daughter was a little bit like kind of into some of it and then like but wasn't like she was locked into the muppet movie the muppets muppets most wanted muppets take manhattan like she was like laser focused and uh and she just yeah and i but i get it like they you're right like those are those are examples of them on some level, like Treasure Island, um, even though it gets uh, – and and, and uh, a Christmas Carol, even though they do get uh, like a lot of uh, public domain works, do get adapted and focused towards children. Like ultimately, they're adult stories and uh, The Great Muppet Caper is an adult story and I even that's a really good call out. Like those are, I think, very good movies. But they are taking it from the approach of um, kidifying adult material as opposed to adulting kid material. Well, and the other thing is that watching it was was sort of heartbreaking for my daughter. I could see in her eyes because she she kept asking me throughout the movie, what is going on? Why are they doing that? What is happening? And I was like, so you're going to need to understand this thing called a fantasy sequence, which is what this movie is experiencing right now. And at one point towards the end, uh, Beaker gets electrocuted trying to break into a museum or something. And she said, what's happening? And I just pressed pause and said, like, so sweetie you just need to know that this movie is presuming that you understand a lot of things that you don't (laughs) and and i can't take the time right now to explain security systems on museums and what electrocution is so you're just gonna have to trust me that this isn't important (laughs) and it was just you're stopping you're like you're like uh i need to show you a taking of pelham one two three i mean Um, and then i need to show And, and you can. Then I need to show you this Con Edison video on how electricity works. But you could see in her eyes, as I said to her, basically, there is a level of adult understanding that you do not have access to. It felt like <laughs> the Great Muppet Caper was the first time that she fully understood that, and it was like that movie broke her heart a little bit. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about that one. We're here to talk about the no, movie but that made but her yeah, say, Kermit's it's a good name for a frog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So before we get into the movie proper. The other thing we want to talk about um, is a song in this movie. We're going to talk probably more about the music as we get into the actual movie. But I feel like The Rainbow Connection is a song that deserves a little bit of its own space so that we don't overwhelm the movie talk or start the movie talk by just talking about that song. Maybe some would argue it's appropriate because it essentially opens the movie. But I think that song has become... uh, not just the opening number for the first Muppet movie, but kind of a touch point for the Muppets and Jim Henson as a whole. Um, it is, I've, uh, could I, could I do even, you one better? Yeah. I think it's, it's one of the only songs of the past half century that really can stack up, you know, to stake a claim in the great American songbook. And that's, that's yeah. what Paul Williams was sort of most the tradition that he draws from in his music. And, and you can hear it in this song. Like, this is an instant standard in a way that a movie from a you know a song from a kids movie is not always going to be. Yeah, and it became a radio hit. It was robbed of the best song at the Academy Award. People were saying it at the time too, so it's like uh, 
It's like the song from the Lego movie from 2014. I had an experience um, where it popped in and I, so I recently watched Easy Rider. I avoided it for a bunch of years because I thought it was just like boomer bullshit. Um, and then I watched cause it. Because you're a, you're a video gamer. Give me hard rider. All right. <laughs> Get good, Easy Rider. Yeah, Aaron. Uh, <laughs> it was the level of difficulty in the riding. Yeah. I don't want to watch some movie about people having a nice, easy road trip. No. I can I see have why, why the dad joke thing on the Muppets now really connects for you guys is that was a very Kermit and, Fra- uh, and, and Fozzie uh, here's a joke yeah thank you anyway <laughs> um, but uh, I I was watching Easy Rider and in the first 10 minutes they're riding motorcycles and they played Born to be Wild and I was like no that's not like an actual thing from a movie that's from car commercials <laughs> that's not oh, something they actually have. and, and uh, my wife turned to me when I uh, we were watching this and she was like, wait, is Rainbow Connection is from like this movie? Like this is this is what all the other movies were riffing on. Like this is where the song. Co- I, I think it like didn't cl- it didn't click. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like th- sometimes if a song escapes its source material in yeah. such in such a, a transcendent, powerful way that like when you finally see it in the original context, you're it's, it's a little surreal. You're like, this was just like a scene in the movie. Yeah. No, and uh, that happened when I saw Rainbow Connection when I was like 10 or 11. Um, and I I always assumed it was like the only song that was a cover. Like that they that they must have been playing this because I had like a song book. Because uh, when I was – I took piano lessons for a while. It did not stick. But like the Rainbow Connection was in there. And like that – I played that. I think like Fred Penner or Raffi or some kids music I had heard like it sung it like I didn't I honestly assumed even as like a 10 year old or however old I was when I finally saw the Muppet movie that this song had come from somewhere else uh, because it was already omnipresent to me um, before seeing this movie. And I say to people, it's my favorite song of all time. And I, I mean it. Um, it's kind of it's it's it hasn't always been my favorite song of all time or something that I would have said that. But. Somewhere in the last 10 years when you're kind of doing that, like, uh, assessment of, like, the songs or, like, the movies or something that you've just seen the most as a – from a child to adulthood and as a song that, you know, doesn't lose its power with me. It, it's And in some ways, like, it's also a song that – and this is going to sound super corny, but it's true um, – like, it's a song that I think that you could build an ethics system around or, like, a worldview or something like that. Like, it just kind of – it encapsulates – it's so good at encapsulating the the Muppets in this in this weird way. Uh, and also, it's just, like, a song that I think just brings nothing but good into the world. Well, you know, the thing for me, it's, it's funny that you say um... – that it it feels like just a song in a movie when you see this opening now because I watching it today uh, which I did just before we talked even though I just watched this movie so recently um, I've seen it so many times <laughs> it what something that really struck me this time was the power of the way it goes from this very intense you know. The opening of the movie is, you know, the sort of story within a story thing. We go into the the movie that the Muppets are watching in the screening room. And there is this huge swelling of orchestral score. And we're flying through the clouds. And it feels very, like, kind of, 
Superman the movie, like, you know, the sort of yeah. soaring, triumphant, this is what the movies are in this this almost comically hyperbolic way. And then it just scale the clouds part and the the sort of sonic palette scales down to just a plucking banjo. And uh, to, to crib from another podcast, um, something that the guys on Blank Check like to talk about is the when, when a composer can create a melody that just feels like the character. And that's something they say Danny Elfman does well uh, on Blank Check when mm-hmm. they're talking about oh, yeah. his themes. And I, that really struck me. So it, it just sort of feels like you're being introduced to everything that Kermit is about and everything he represents. <laughs> Mm-hmm. as sort of a cultural figure in just that transition from great soaring epic to just humble you know just just a humble banjo plucker frog playing in a swamp singing yeah. about sort of you know the the beauty of existence <laughs> you're that's so right and in those few chords which it being a very simple rhythm that anyone could figure out on a banjo pretty much given you know a, a little bit of time and a little bit of understanding like uh any and let's be fair you gotta own a banjo yeah yeah and Not any and any amount of banjos over zero um <laughs> and uh the fact that it is such a simple little rhythm speaks to Kermit's sort of um not naive, but simple worldview. Like Kermit doesn't get caught up in moral. Kermit doesn't seem to get caught up in moral gray zones. Like he'll land there and then he'll navigate his way out of it. Like Kermit is a moral compass, right? Um, and the fact that it is sort of, you can just feel the welcoming nature of it. Um, it's sort of beckoning you in, but in the same breath, it's, there's a wisdom to it. It's, it's, it's speaking to a simple wisdom, but not a stupidity or a naivety. Kermit is not an idiot savant where you're like, well, we, uh, you know, he's he seems, he seems pretty stupid when you first see him. Yeah, but, uh, you know, fool. I think I learned a thing or two from this frog. Like, no, yeah. Kermit is like someone who's genuinely emotionally intelligent and goes on his yeah. own journeys. And <laughs> and you're you're so right. That little that little string riff, the little banjo riff at the beginning is just like, uh it's, well, him it's, in it's a humble, I think, is, is the It thing. is humble. That's a good way to put it. And and I was well, thinking, what by the end of this movie, what do we know about Kermit? And again, like, why do kids respond to him so much? What do we know about him is Kermit likes one thing, making people happy. He doesn't like one thing, bullies. And, <laughs> yeah. And it's just like that. there's that opening where uh, the, the agent, Bernie the agent, says, um, well, you should come to Hollywood because you can be rich and famous. And he goes, well, I'm, I'm fine. I'm I don't want to do that. And the guy goes, well, you could make a lot of people happy. And Kermit's like, hang on, I'm in. (laughs) And that's just such this sort of, again, speaking to sort of a childlike conception of the world where they're like, I like this guy. Happy is good. Bullies are bad. I'm in. Yeah. And I, um, there's, so there's lyrics in the song that Paul Williams called out as like his favorite lyrics that he written. Um, uh, which is the uh, the who said every wish could be heard and answered? Wish on the morning star. Somebody thought of it. Someone believed it. Look what it's done so far. And he um, he he said that he those were his favorite lyrics because it's really a great representation about how there's there's he, his quote was there's power in your thoughts and I can't think of a better representation of not just kind of in a weird way like yeah Jim Henson that's kind of even though Jim Henson didn't write the song. 
Like, Jim Hansen had this crazy idea to make this uh, show uh, originally called Sex and Violence with his puppetry uh, things, creations, and, like, it became this, like, phenomenon. Like, that is something that, you know, Jim Henson created based on the power of what he saw, and he kind of made the entire world, like, he – it's not one of those things where he uh, – the world came – or that he came to what the world was looking for, really – like, the world came to his vision. Um, but I also think it's a really good, like, way to look at the world in that, like, for both good and ill, there is power in the things that you that you believe and think. And when those are used for good, it creates stuff like the Muppets and other, like, you know, entertainment or uh, movements or, you know, positive humanitarian stuff. And when it's used for, like, evil, it causes a lot of destruction. But um, I really do think that, like, those lines and that idea is the the whole, like, uh, Rosetta Stone to... Henson, the Muppets, and everything else, like, when it comes to, like, the power of art. And I think it's just so beautifully written in that kind of way in this beautiful song that, like Ethan said, feels very unassuming. Can I can I give my shout-out to my favorite Paul Williams line that struck me today, having never really struck me all that hard before? Is yeah. In a song that is the song I kind of usually zone out during, but I didn't tonight for whatever you're gonna reason. say are you gonna say i'm gonna go back there yeah that one um yeah and but there's a line in there that just just hit me tonight which was something like there's not a word yet for old friends who just met yeah and it's like god damn it paul williams <laughs> like you've written so many great lines that that one just slipped by me until now and yeah. and you know that guy is, think, is it's you if, if jim henson wanted to create one of the great movie musicals <laughs> How in the yeah. world could you have done better, you know, by picking a songwriter than, than Paul Williams? <laughs> I think the reason that this doesn't feel corny or sentimental is because, specifically because of line that line. And that's that the moment you are introduced to Kermit or Fozzie or any of these characters, they do feel like they're like old friends. Like they have a, um, not just to you, but to one another. They have like... Uh, they all gel together in terms of like almost design aesthetic. They're written to have interesting character dynamics. And yeah, like they, they all are, are kind of like somewhat static. Kermit as a character changes somewhat based on who's leading the writing because Kermit's such a simple character. I think he can be kind of manipulated in certain ways. Um, but like you always know what Miss Piggy wants. You always know what Fozzie wants, like yada, yada. Like, but like that line just really speaks to like the the fact that like the reason I think the reason it's not corny is because like these are actual characters which is seems silly to say about what is ultimately like a little bit of felt and and plastic you know yeah and I and I will say about I'm gonna go back there someday since uh, or I want to go back there someday just because we probably won't get back into it I do I do think it's a wonderful song that is like poorly placed in a in an otherwise great movie. Like it kind of halts the action a little bit too close to the end, but like in a vacuum it's an amazing song. Right. That's my hot take on I'm going to go back. Well, to the other thing about it is it just it doesn't really like make sense in terms of like 
it, it doesn't have any real bearing on Gonzo's arc or anybody's arc. It's not really yeah. resonant with anything that we've seen to this point. It's like, it, except it did inspire essentially Muppets from Space twenty one years right, later. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's not fair enough. But that's considered not a good movie. I kind of like it, but uh, um, I think I got a DVD copy of that free in the cereal box at some point. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a joke how much the cereal box cost yeah <laughs> how many people died on accidentally choking on an entire dvd mm. of muppets from space there's a hole in the middle it's just like a lifesaver aaron where's ralph nader <laughs> so anything else on the rainbow connection or should we just plow right ahead to talking even more about 1979's the Muppet movie. It's the song that always makes me cry. Um, it's a song that almost ever I, I cried in theaters when I heard it in 2011. When the, the, the um, yeah, me too. When the when the that movie came out, and that was back when I cried at nothing in theaters, <laughs> and I started cheering up last night after my wife teasingly poked me, and she was like, "Oh, Rainbow Connection, you're gonna start crying, crying now," and I was like, "No, shut up." <laughs> <laughs> they, I we'll talk about this more next week. They use it so fucking well in 2011s. So I hope your wife watches that with you when we cover it because uh, I don't know how you couldn't cry at that. Like I think that um, from a crying standpoint, it is more effective as a moment that makes you want to b- start bawling in 2011s Muppets than it does in in this movie. Well, you'd be crying in this movie, and 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 I also am similarly emotionally affected by it. I mean, you're you're crying because it just is such an effective trigger for kind of yeah everything these movies represent, and a sense I think of of sort of adulthood's coiling, uh, kind of getting to relax for a second, and like oh right, <laughs> there are things that still make me feel this sort of yeah. relaxed, and and you know. The Muppets just kind of and and to go back again to sort of the broader discussion, what makes the Muppets not work is anytime they try and introduce cynicism. These are the yeah, most yeah. ridiculously uncynical <laughs> sort of creations <laughs> yep. and and it's the same way that sort of again the the Mr. Rogers songs can can trigger that sort of emotional release in you is like oh right the world felt like this (laughs) it's kind of like when we did it's a wonderful life and we talked about how like an hour before the part that makes us cry we would start crying thinking about what was coming (laughs) like um and it is just like so hearing the rainbow connection it is it's not just like uh even at the opening this of this movie it's not just hearing the song or in in the context of the movie itself, but like recognizing how important it's been to you and what it means throughout the course of the Muppets and Henson and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you, Ethan. It, it feels um, it's sort of like if I don't I don't want to. It, it sort of feels like them making mainstream Superman movies that are riffing on evil Superman. Where you're like, no, that's like what Brightburn and those movies are for. Like, the, that's what the riffs are for. The the side stuff that's sort of reacting to it. The main the main branch thing like has value in being pure and and of itself. Um, the Muppets the Muppets doesn't need to be cynical. We've got what was that? Uh, Avenue Q or whatever. Yeah. Uh, we got that. We got uh, we got Meet the Feebles. We've got uh, the Melissa McCarthy movie. Whatever. I don't think most of these are very good. Um, but I like Meet the Feebles. We've, Meet the Feebles is fine. But we've got all the the Muppets that fuck movies. Uh, but can I defend Avenue Q for a second? Is that's another work that is deeply uncynical. 
I've seen that show twice, um, and it is it is kind of taking on the trappings of sort of like eh, Muppets who watch porn. But at its heart, it is a it is a very sincere kind of embrace of all the same the same values that that the Muppets were always built on. And it, cynicism is such a funny thing <laughs> because it's not about the outward trappings of the fact that there's a song in Avenue Q called "Everyone's a Little Bit Racist." I think <laughs> the the idea of trying to kind of recreate the childlike joy with the ABC sitcom without your heart being in it is is much more cynical. Yeah, I mean, well, really well said, really well said. Yeah, I, I just, uh, I like, I like the stuff that's riffing on the Muppets to be, if it's going to be cynical and make fun, tease the Muppets, which I'm probably not going to engage with it anyways. But I, I like to keep, I'd like to keep with the Muppets is somewhat pure as this experience because like it was, it has been passed down through generations since the fucking fifties, basically. I mean, I know the show uh, didn't exist until the late sixties, but. But can I also just say we we have been for the last like half hour now talking about this property as this sort of like emotionally pure, like borderline spiritual thing. This movie is weird as fuck. It has yes, it yes, has yeah. a lot of really sort of not exactly edgy humor, but humor with sort of a sting to it and and it is. I think. It, I think it is a little edgy. Well, it, like edgy it, has become such sort of a loaded word. Um. Yeah, I, I think. It, I think it's definitely edgy for. Like, I was reading some like contemporary reviews of this movie, and it did like the Muppets in a lot of ways were kind of seen as kind of this weird like countercultural thing, like that was like very hip and edgy. Um, like in a, oh, I think in this a movie's wholesome... very hip. I used that term early earlier. Yeah. Like I think the movie's very hip. Well, look at Doctor Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. Is they are they are all so very specifically parodying sort of burnout rock stars of the sixties, and some of them, you know, very directly parodying specific figures. And you know, it it doesn't come across as weird and sort of trying too hard. It it comes across as very. You know, weren't weren't the Muppets originally part of like Saturday Night Live in in the first season? Like they were, you know the yeah the, the they did a, they did a special yeah. returning segment yeah, yeah. recurring segment. The early stuff was kind of countercultural and and weirder. And, well, the pilot for the Muppet Show was called Sex and Violence, right? <laughs> and it's on the DVD, and it's pretty funny. Like, um, and like when you go back to those Muppet Show episodes, which. So, The Muppet Show premiered in 1975 and ended in 1980. This movie comes out in 1979. So, Sesame Street and, like, the concept of Muppets had been around for longer. Um, I think that premiered in, like, 68 or 69. But, um, but like, th- this specific, like, Muppet Show was, like, really started out with, with Henson going big with, no, 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 I, I don't want to do the kid stuff. Like, I, I'm going to call this show Sex and Violence. <laughs> Um, which is it seems uh, a little bit edgelord even for Henson in 1974, but um, it like it always was kind of at that like, and it had like those big stars on every episode. There was always a guest host. It was like a mini Saturday Night Live, and it it like I remember discovering the Muppet Show before I saw the Muppet movie on Nick at Night reruns, like late at night. Which was probably like nine thirty, but it felt late at night. Whenever it was, I watched them, um, and feeling like I was watching something like uh, adult and dangerous, 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really good point to jump in with is that like, yes, while we're talking about the Muppets being uh, incredibly uh, sincere, sentimental, honest, uh, sweet, uh, it doesn't mean that it's like dopey or or hokey uh, in its best iterations. It can be dopey and hokey, yeah. but um, yeah, in its best iterations, and I think- it doesn't it doesn't mean that it, it actually that it actually was very honest and, and um, thoughtful about the world and like sought to entertain everybody like Jim Henson wanted to wanted to truly make just be, wanted to make entertainment for the whole family. And he didn't do that by necessarily like this movie doesn't have like it has a few nods at sex, but uh, most of the jokes are just like so ridiculous that even a child would be able to like laugh at just like Steve Martin's odd rhythms, right? Yeah, and I I think too like um, it is funny rewatching this. Like I think this movie only has one really like the I learned something today moment at the end, and I we don't need to talk about it right this second, but I do think it is such a perfect like Jim Henson lesson, like. Peter, you're 100% right. Like, when the Muppets get wrong is when people go too far into sincerity. And it's not so much that the the – they're not sincerity, sorry, but like wholesomeness or like heartwarmingness because that's not all the Muppets well, sort are. sort of treakliness, yeah. Yeah, and I think the key is is that it's not that the Muppets just sit and are like always like Mr. Rogers level motivationally wholesome. It's that – when they get that chance to express it or express what they're feeling in that moment or what the lesson is that hopefully you've learned for this, it's done with such insightfulness and sincerity that it feels like it's more present than it maybe was in the movie. Cause this really just says like that speech to doc Hopper at the end is the moment where it's incredibly like, Hey, here's how you should be as a person. And, but that's it. Like, the rest of the movie is, like, wholesome in the sense that, like, uh, you know, uh, Kermit and his friend – he treats everyone with respect uh, that he meets and lets them join in for the most part. But it's not, like – it's not preachy. And, and it's not, like, cynical in its, like, well, in trying to, like, be wholesome. What I think that the movie is is that it's, it's, it's sort of guided by this very deep core of decency – which I think is an, a kind of an underrated virtue where the, the characters are petty in the moment. They're selfish in the moment. Kermit is kind of petty and selfish at times in, um, in very minor ways, but he is so guided by this just sort of, like I say, this, this core of decency that the rest of the movie can kind of get away with digressing into the, the sort of, maybe playing with some more sordid ideas or, or some um, more out there jokes because just the governing worldview is sort of this, this sort of uncomplicated moral foundation uh, yeah. that even in the end, it, it is, it's a great joke um, that sort of is derived from the character where Kermit has his big showdown with Doc Hopper and says, I think, that if you look in your heart right now, you're going to see that I'm right and you're going to let me go. And that is, yeah. that's Kermit and just his beautiful, optimistic spirit. And then the movie sort of sticks its tongue out at him. It certainly doesn't flip him off because it's a Muppet movie, but <laughs> Doc Hopper's response is, no, I'm going to kill you. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so the, uh, the movie can still feel sort of spiritually pure because it is all just operating from that that core of, of Kermit as a protagonist. And then the rest, of, I mean, the movie feels really kind of borderline grungy to me at times. Like yeah. there are spots where it, it feels like Chinatown or something, particularly in any bar or restaurant scene. It, it has that really sort of 70s, I think the way I put it on the letterbox last time I, I watched it was it feels like the, the sort of cells have been dipped in coffee and you can smell the smoke on the sets. And it, it does, it feels sort of surprisingly adult in that way compared to, to some other Muppet movies and, and most kid movies. You're right. Well, at one point right. in the That's movie, the Kermit does go grab mustiness. a beer. And, and yeah. Ralph, Ralph talks, Ralph, Ralph <laughs> talks about uh, how he drinks a couple of beers every night. And I was like, that kind of yeah. feels, feels strange to hear a puppet dog say. Yeah. <laughs> also, given his size, uh, a, c- a couple beers is probably a substantial amount of alcohol. <laughs> I have a, I have a couple beers. I drive home, which is totally okay in 1979. <laughs> no one thinks it's weird. Uh, and then uh, I go home and I vote for Reagan. Uh, New America. Um, let's uh, like we're. I know we're we're bursting at the brim to to talk more about the movie. Feels like we're getting into it in more detail. So why don't we transition? Do you guys want to continue to talk about the Muppet movie? Yeah, let's do it. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> There's not a word yet for old friends who've just met. Part heaven, part space, or have I found my place? You can. I did not. I'm sitting here reading the uh, Onion article. The uh, I appreciate the Muppets on a much deeper level than you because I feel like all three of us just kind of sound like that guy, and it's uh, it's keeping me honest. Yeah. I think that's probably true. Well, he's he's mad at the guy. The premise of this article is is that he's mad at somebody else for for not appreciating the Muppets properly. And he says it's bad enough that you haven't grown up loving the Muppet movie, but afterwards you called it, and I quote, "funny," not a deeply spiritual and highly personal <laughs> statement of ambition tempered by ethics, but funny. Look, the, first of all, that was probably written by someone that went on to go work at the AV Club because I believe that's a very early or late nineties episode and my guess is that I, that article always felt to me like someone writing uh basically exactly what they they <laughs> felt but also recognizing that it was stupid like having enough self-awareness to go this is how i feel and that's funny enough for an article mm, except that it does presume that that a true muppet aficionado doesn't like the muppet christmas carol which doesn't seem to be well, the case but it does have a nice shout out to uh, emmett otter's jug band christmas instead which also has some fantastic paul williams songs uh it does but man i uh i i rewatched it this last christmas with my daughter and she made it like (laughs) she made it 10 minutes and i was having some trouble too good music i remembered liking it a lot more as a kid i still loved it my daughter was not super into it but no it works for me but it's only it's only 45 minutes and it's just it's just all atmosphere like as somebody who kind of loves that you know I don't know where where would it be just like Eastern Seaboard, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. Christmas rural vibe. It just it works for me. 
Yeah, it's going to be one of those movies that I watch every three years thinking I love it more than I do. You know, three years is enough time to be like, oh, yeah. Well, and and Um, that was the real kickoff for me to my uh, Paul Williams kind of renaissance of this past year, particularly because I think I don't know why this phenomenon happens for so many people, but I watched it and was like, it's so sad that he died. And he's he's not dead. He's not very dead. much alive. He's in fucking Baby Driver, right? But many and and I had seen that movie. <laughs> but so many people, it's this is this is not an uncommon thing. As I've talked to Paul Williams, sort of fans is is a lot of people say. And I just learned he's even the the title of the documentary about him is Paul Williams colon still alive because the director of the documentary had thought he was dead. <laughs> And then made the movie about him to discover he wasn't. Um, the thing that kind of sent me on the Paul Williams deep dive was the first time I saw The Phantom of the Paradise like seven, eight years ago. Well, that's, was, that is that is part of my whole thing too, but go on. Yeah. Yeah, just because like I guess I didn't – I don't I don't know when I realized that Paul Williams like who – I think it was somewhere around Phantom of the Paradise because I, I definitely like – I probably thought the rainbow – I. I know I thought for a long time that the songs in this movie were written by Jim Henson. <laughs> like, because idiot. why wouldn't I think that? Yeah. <laughs> also, he does the voices. Right. Yeah. He puppets the frog. <laughs> like It, like, matches his voice so well. Like, like I mentioned with the Rainbow Connection, it feels like, yeah, this is Jim Henson. Well, the Emmett Otter thing led me back to Phantom of the Paradise for the first time in a while. And that sent me off on a whole different thing that now I'm going to, starting next year, I'm going to be serializing sort of a book length thing about Phantom of Paradise at Brightwell Dark Room. So I'm all up, awesome. all up in Paul Williams for the past year. <laughs> anyway, we should get back into it because it's late. Yeah. So, uh, Peter, we'll say you are alternate taglines. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, Announcement: Doctor Teeth is not a Stephen King villain. Uh, yeah, it's Doctor Doctor Teeth. See, Electric Mayhem also could be a cocaine era Stephen King villain, but Doctor Teeth and the Electric Mayhem is clearly just a rockin' '60s '70s band, right? Yeah, they don't do drugs, and they don't look like Peter. Presbyterians. <laughs> That's one of my favorite jokes in the movie and was when I was a kid, too. But anyways, let's get into the movie. So, yeah, the Muppet movie starts out that they are gathering all the Muppets, all your favorites. The two old cranks, uh, the bird, the the fish juggler, um, which actually is a very funny part because he is complaining that he's not in the movie, which, again, very meta joke for a 10-year-old because you're like, well, he is in the Wait, movie. Wait, what is the, um, the bird? Sam the Eagle? I don't know. I'm just joking because there's a lot of like oh, okay. giant birds. That's yeah. what I was wondering. I was like, I, I know, I know the their bird? names, Ethan. Um, I was wondering who you had characterized as the bird because there's one, Sam Eagle. <laughs> I will, yeah, no, no. There's a there's a couple like giant ones, especially at the end when they have just just every at the, the ending shot where they have every Muppet they ever created right. in one shot, which is great. Um, I will say this just quick, very quick pause because we're not going to cover it this month. Uh, Sam the Eagle does have my the my favorite Muppet line of all time, which is in the Great Muppet Caper, uh, that makes me laugh every time. Even if I just watch a thirty second YouTube clip of it where he walks into the scene and just goes, "You are all weirdos." <laughs> it's so good. Yep. Uh, so, anyways, yes. Yeah, so they're at the theater, and Kermit announces that they're going to show the movie version of the story of how the Muppets got together. Um, so it starts with, yeah, Kermit in a swamp. He's playing a song. He meets. Well, hang um, on. I'm going to, I'm going to stop you already because something that I really kind of keyed in again, 
uh, on this this watch thinking about like sort of the way it speaks to kids is is Robin, who I think is is Kermit's nephew, right? Yeah, is, is almost the perspective character of the movie because all these boisterous idiot grown-ups are sitting down together and Robin is the little sort of pure of heart child who is like the one who really locks onto the movie and, and is the one who moves us kind of in and out at the few times that they do break back into the screening room and it just it just felt kind of like this this nice subtle nod to me to like grown-ups are going to watch this but kids this one's for you wait yeah why, and also here explain to me why Robin is not uh, you know, a Godzuki or a Scrappy Doo, or like, why is Robin not? Uh, uh, does why does he not inspire uh, disdain in, in people? Because Jim Henson is smarter than that. I think is, is just yeah. Like Robin's not a not an annoying little twerp, right? He's well, yeah, because it'd be Christmas weird. Carol too, like very endearing. Yeah. It would be weird to have a like sarcastic Muppet child who's like, yeah. Yeah, uncle, you and your old friends, you dumb show that you guys did. Sure, tell me the story. Like, it'd be a little little out of place. I also think they use him sparingly. So, because, like, it is very much the little nephew vibe. But anyways, yeah. So, they, they get to Kermit. He meets Dom DeLuise, who is like, go be in show business. So, he's to make people happy. Uh, I don't think uh, that's how Dom DeLuise sounds. Do you think you could maybe... <laughs> Uh, there's a gator. I don't know. I don't remember. Like you do a Dom DeLuise accent. <laughs> he's always like, he's always like, ha, 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 ha. You should uh, be in a show business. It's like he doesn't know how to modulate within any real, real range. Um, he just makes mouth noises in a way that seems huh? like he's trying to uh, jog his own memory on what the, the words for the script were. <laughs> that's a that's a good call out. The fun thing about seeing this movie when you're ten is that. At best, you know two uh, of the celebrity cameos, which are Steve Martin and Mel Brooks, and the rest of the people, maybe Richard Pryor if you're a cool 10-year-old, especially if you see this later on, like, uh, as opposed to, like, I probably saw this in the early 90s. Or if you're a giant Uh, dork like I was as a kid, Edgar Bergen does does break through for you. (laughs) <laughs> um, but it, but it is like like I didn't recognize this as a celebrity cameo as a child. Well, the, the thing like, that really blew me away watching it with my daughter a couple of weeks ago was seeing Elliot Gould and uh, Cloris Leachman in it. Yeah, like, Holy I didn't know shit. who the fuck they were when I was ten. Yeah, like you know Steve Martin probably because he started doing a lot of family stuff. And um, actually, I definitely did not know who Mel Brooks was. When I saw you when I saw this original Gene Wilder is, but not necessarily Mel Brooks, right? No, I don't think I would have known. Well, yeah, because of Willy Wonka, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I definitely. So I discovered Mel Brooks after this, which like somewhat like Spaceballs when I was twelve, which was also kind of crazy because I discovered Star Wars when I was like eleven. So to find like a whole parody version of Star Wars afterwards, it was like, who? How did this get made? They made a whole other movie, not, wait, so making fun of my new that. favorite you movie. Say that on this podcast, how did this get made? Is a different thing, and you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> They've copyrighted the concept of questioning existence. Um, but uh, yeah, it it. Uh, but yeah, but like I actually kind of consider this like if you're like tracking like my evolution of what I found funny, like the reason this was like proto Mel Brooks for me and that like it has that same level of like goofy surrealism. Anyways, oh, uh, so yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, so he ends up going into town, and that's when Doc Hopper's like, "Hey, uh, I'm assuming you're a frog with no moral character. I'm How do you stop feel you about again?" <laughs> and that's gonna, this is the quick recap, Ethan. You got to go back. Good. Well, no, okay. I mean, are we just gonna blast right by the fact that he rides a bicycle, which is this huge, mind blowing? No, thing? it's in my no, it's in my notes. But you don't go every moment. I'm just getting the gist for what? people, and we'll go back. Oh to my stuff. god. Fine. You bet on the show, Ethan. I have, but I didn't have as much to say about those movies. <laughs> um, so yes, he rides a bicycle into town, which is uh, a Doc big Hop- deal. <laughs> it is. It's a. It's the a really big deal. rides a bicycle, Aaron. We Come okay. On. Ethan, it'll be the first fucking thing we talk about at the end of this, because <laughs> uh, I do think that's an important point. Because there is, anyways, we'll get to that. So uh, yeah, he meets Fozzie Bear. Uh, Doc Hopper's like, how do you feel about selling out your own kind for genocide and making some money? Capitalism. Um, and he's like, no, thank you. I don't want to sell frog legs. He meets Fozzie Bear, says he's going to Hollywood. They get in a car. They move right along. Yes, we will talk more about that song, Ethan. Don't worry about it. I'm um, holding my tongue. Yes. Uh, they the meet... So they keep so Doc Hopper keeps trying elaborate ruses to get them essentially uh, as they keep picking up more and more Muppets. So they meet uh, Gonzo the Great as they crash into his car with uh, with his chicken girlfriend. <laughs> we'll definitely talk about that. Um, and they meet Miss Piggy at a fair, a beauty pageant. They they keep trying to go to Hollywood while Doc Hopper keeps pursuing them. Um, they run into the Electric Mayhem, an animal which helps them uh, disguise. Their car, uh, which lasts for not that long before they are caught, which is a very funny joke. Um, and eventually they, um, you know, Miss Piggy and Kermit fall in love. And then Miss Piggy leaves Kermit to go do a photo, uh, do a, uh, an ad or a commercial. I'm not even sure I'd say they fall in love so much as just go on a date. It's this very strange courtship they're going through. Kermit never seems super sold on her. <laughs> Yeah, she she has an elab. She is love at first sight for him, and has this elaborate sexual fantasy. And then he immediately goes to not so but much. He's I'm very. In love. He immediately jumps into uh, seven years in a relationship, ten years in a relationship, like harried boyfriend. He's just like, I just don't get any time with her. I know. Yeah, <laughs> the fact he that does the, the like can't live with him, can't live without him. Song is an interruption on their first date. Is one of the funniest things in this movie. <laughs> By the way, that full version of that song is very good, lyrics aside. Like, I love – they kind of cut – that's the song that they really cut short in this movie uh, from the full version that's on the soundtrack. Um, And it's like a really good piano melody, a great Paul Williams song, giving aside the fact that the whole premise is like women, right? (laughs) Whoa. But, uh, you know, very catchy melody. Anyways – uh, so, uh, eventually, uh, Miss Piggy ends up back with them, and they kind of have a final confrontation with Doc Hopper in this old west town. Uh, there's also a part where he gets kidnapped by Mel Brooks and almost electrocuted. Um, but after that, so, and they end up meeting Beaker. And why am I forgetting his name? Well, Bunsen. Bunsen Honeydew. And uh, they uh, end up uh, confronting Doc Hopper. With kind of letting them know that, hey, what you're doing is kind of bullshit. Just go let us leave our lives. He says, no, go fuck yourself. I'm going to gonna turn you into frog leg ad. And uh, Animal ingests one of uh, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew's uh, potions, becomes giant, saves the day. 
They end up on their way to Hollywood where they meet Orson Welles, who signs their rich and famous contract. And then you see them on the set of the movie that they are making ostensibly and uh, cuts back to the theater uh, to kind of uh, to wrap it up. So, yeah, that's, that's essentially the very quick version of the Muppet movie. If you haven't seen it, you skip uh, it's actually so a- much. I know, Ethan, that's the whole point. <laughs> Basic plot of the movie, but uh, – and then, of course, you know, from – this came out at the height of the show's popularity. So, the premise in a lot of ways to watchers of 1979 that were familiar with The Muppet Show is like, this is how all these people came together and formed the show that you've been watching week in and week out for the last few years. Which, on paper, is a terrible idea. <laughs> Muppets origins. Yeah, like I don't, I, I don't need to know why all my friends are friends. Um, yeah. Well, there's also you do uh, though in this case, Peter. Okay. There's also the so fact before that we is, do anything, it is, it is a a fully self mythologized version, which is part of the sort of dense meta weirdness of all of this. Is is they sit down at the beginning and Robin says, "Is this really how you all met?" And Kermit's like, "Give or take." Yeah, I, yeah. I love I love that joke because it's like. Because it's something a little kid would ask, like, "Is that really how this went down?" And he's like, "Uh, yeah, sure." And and the, the fact- part that always the part that always melted my brain as a kid was recognizing. So at the end of the Muppet movie that they're watching, they're showing you put up sets for them shooting the Muppet movie. But at the end of the movie, you realize that those sets aren't actually them shooting the movie. That is still just like part of the movie that they use for a coda for the film that they made. Um, so that like level of like um, Russian nesting doll um, level of meta-ness was like very sort of brain melting for a 10 year old who like didn't even understand what the word meta meant. Well, let so alone the joke. The there's fact- a joke. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go on, Ethan. Well, let alone the fact that at one point the characters, rather than explain their backstory, give the other characters a copy of the script to the movie. Yep. Oh, and yeah. That was then the script God. leads those characters to find them again at the end of the movie. I mean, that's like some some Charlie yeah. Kaufman stuff. And and as a Ex- kid, I exterior desert night. Where else would you exactly. be? Exactly. As a little kid, I was like, wait, no, 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 they can't restart the movie. Then we have, we, we watch all this and we have to wait. And then it comes back and Fozzie and Kermit are bored with their own movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so good. It's And watching the, yeah, the handing the script, which again, it, not surprising, I fell in love with Mel Brooks, which has a very similar gag in Spaceballs, where like, uh, where they read the script, probably in like two other Mel Brooks movies I'm forgetting too, because uh, he loved that gag. Um but yeah, it was so like, oh, you could do that in the movie, which is why, like I said it earlier, the Muppet movie did kind of feel dangerous to me because – and like adult because the concept of like characters recamping a plot or solving a mystery and saving the day and having their uh, their way out of a problem just by reading the movie script was like nothing I'd ever seen. Well, and that's part of why I think even more than something like Marvel or even Star Wars – the Muppets being bought by Disney felt very strange to me because there is a real, I think, genuine anarchy to the spirit of these movies that is just so counter. Like, you would never see Mickey Mouse in any iteration be as sort of fourth wall breaking and, yeah, just sort of like chaotic Yeah, that was a Looney Tunes thing, right? 
Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of uh, pieces of this that remind me of a uh, later movie. Uh, it's uh, Pee-wee's, uh, Pee-wee's first movie. Pee-wee's Big yeah. Adventure? <laughs> Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Uh, not another movie I just took my daughter to go see in theaters. Yeah. Uh, not just because it's the it ends with them literally making a movie about the movie you just watched. Um, because I guess that's sort of a flip of what actually happens. But yeah, uh, it, it the sense of humor, particularly that entire barroom scene, feels incredibly peewee esque. Like that sense of of um, unruly, throw everything at the wall kind of sur- surreal uh kitty comedy where like just seeing two two uh incredibly disparate things next to each other like a, a crazy juxtaposition like a cowboy next to like an oil chic is like yeah. funny it's just funny um and them all uh fozzy getting knocked across the bar replacing the bartender who is just knocked out and then saying drinks on the bar and then somehow every single person in that bar interprets that as there's going to be free booze on the roof (laughs) (laughs) that's incredibly peewee and 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 and, uh i'm not saying that to take down the majesty of uh of of what peewee did but like that sort of comedy resonated with me as a kid because like it felt like there were no rules especially to someone who like i i'm an i'm an adhd kid who like liked my shit as zany and wild as possible and i got easily bored and i liked a movie that felt like it was moving faster than my brain well and also like it almost goes back to that joke is an example of like not having cynicism in your humor like there's not like one person that stays behind and is like you idiots yeah he yes. means this like everyone goes along with it everyone's kind of surprised it works the movie moves on i mean that's that's uh that's a pretty mel mel brooks thing i mean yeah. there's there's a there's there's some exceptions to that like he occasionally does have characters that almost play straight men um but then they're a joke in a different way like uh headley lamar in uh, blazing saddles like he's constantly like no you don't it, it was a joke. Like, please do not do that specific stupid thing. But then he gets dunked on in other ways. Um, that, that that aligning it up with that Mel Brooks, uh, Pee Wee, um, almost Zucker Brothers sense of just anything can happen. Um, comedy is, is is very appealing to me. And I know that they didn't yeah. originate that. That comes out of like, um, I mean. It comes out of the fucking Marx Brothers, but um, it, 60s yeah. comedies were tapping into that similar sort of like it's a madman, mad, mad world style uh, surrealism craziness. And a lot of British comedies of the era were tapping into into that as well. Um, and I think that this I think that the Muppets helped open me up to like zany, surrealistic alt comedy that could go anywhere. Yeah. And I think uh, it spoke to me, too, because mel brooks and that like as a kid especially like i constantly took the wrong meanings from the things people said right like where they said something that meant this and i would think they meant whatever other like literal version or something like that um and i i would this would happen to me when i would watch movies or other things like and sometimes it took me a long time to figure out like oh that's what that meant like the the funniest example i use um when i kind of describe what i mean to people is um like so jurassic park i saw when i was 10 it was my 
favorite movie as a 10 year old that part where uh the raptor kills Muldoon after ellie sattler went and ran uh, away was where he goes turns to the raptor and goes clever girl i literally thought i saw that movie 10 something times in theaters i thought every single time i saw that until uh, like a couple years later that when he said clever girl he thought that ellie who is a girl had dressed up like a raptor and he thought that was a clever way to get through the uh, the jungle uncovered. <laughs> and that is incredibly not what that line meant. But like I, that's that is how I would sometimes think of these. So these these things were like movie characters would like, and maybe that's just a, a kid thing because you don't understand like uh, metaphors and terminology and the way, colloquialisms and all that kind of stuff. But like I I. It, it would happen to me frequently enough that I remember really gravitating towards those kind of like gags where people say something and everyone takes it the wrong way. I would like to circle back to the peewee thing real quick because okay. I found that I, – I find that kind of fascinating in contrast to stuff like, like Mel Brooks and like the Zucker Brothers is I feel like something that – that those movies have uh, a Mel Brooks movie or a Zucker Brothers movie, even Airplane, you know, even I don't know whatever the zaniest Mel Brooks movie is, there is usually sort of a core and a spine that carries through, and so it's you know Spaceballs is always at its heart sort of a parody of Star Wars that will branch off in other zany directions and then kind of circle back, and the Muppet movie, aside from its plot spine, doesn't really have that like. And in a similar way to Pee Wee, sort of moment to moment, there is a sense of like, wait, what is this movie? <laughs> like, it's yeah, it's a road movie, which is inherently yeah. liberating. It is, and and the line that I I thought of today was, it's a garbage plate movie, and I don't know where I've heard that term before. Maybe we've used it on this show, but it's it's a movie that like it's just a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and it doesn't really sort of cohere based on anything more than just sort of the cheerful like, well, this makes sense operational logic of it 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 is a movie that you can say it's it's a movie about puppets who go to hollywood and you're describing like a tenth of a tenth of a percent about what this movie is <laughs> yeah yeah speak the, the entire the entire um ethos of the movie is actually very fascinating and the fact that like they they get to the end and are just rewarded like they like orson welles has one line and it's basically like you won the movie, okay? You you get you get the thing that you worked hard to get. And like, Kermit doesn't even have to make his case, which is what's so hysterical. He just shows up and goes, "We're here to be rich and famous." And Orson Welles goes, "Okay." Everyone has been in a, that writer spot where they, <laughs> you're just like, "How the fuck do these two people resolve what they're working on?" Uh, and then if you're making a Muppet movie or a Pee Wee movie, you could just have them shake hands and walk away. Um, it reminds me very much of um, there's a I think it's a deleted scene maybe from Scott Pilgrim that uh, wherein Scott fights Dark Scott and they set it up as this big climactic battle and then they meet and then it cuts to them like kind of shaking hands and then Scott's oh like, yeah Scott's like Scott's That's... like yeah he's a pretty he's a pretty he's a pretty nice guy we're gonna like get coffee next week or whatever like they totally yeah. buy in, in comedies you can inverse. The, the dramatic expectations of what a climax are in, in, a, in a way that, like, doesn't feel anticlimactic, even though it is, like, by definition anticlimactic. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, that's not a deleted scene. That's in the movie, and it's very funny. Oh, I mean, is that, is that actually in the movie? I thought that it is. Like, the director's cut or something? No, no, it's just in the movie. Oh, okay. Um, and I, that's one of the things I actually really love about Scott Pilgrim because it, it has so many of those moments where it just like it, it doesn't worry about. Um, I don't know if consistency is the right word, but it's like, what's the funniest way to end this situation? Which obviously is probably taking from the comic book that I've never read, but um, it's it's very good. Scott Pilgrim. It kind of has that same ethos. <laughs> it, it's, yeah. it's Nega Scott, not Dark Scott, which I think is even Yeah, better. there we go. The, ah, that comic is really great. You should check it out. It's taken from Nega Duck, probably from Darkwing Duck. Uh, anyway, everyone remembers Nega Duck. I nope. I do. He wore yellow. Kind of what's sad about it? <laughs> That's why Ethan wants to move. There on. is, Anyways, there is Ethan, so little room in my brain for things that actually matter. But I know a lot about what was it like? Darkwing Disney Duck. afternoon cartoon shows. <laughs> so good. Uh, anyway, Ethan, do you want to talk about someone riding a bike? Well, look. Here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, Alec Baldwin's what do you think? Podcast? What do you think is a better bike riding sequence? This or Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid? Go. Well, uh, I don't want to get into that right now because you're going to send me off on a rant. But look, like it, uh, it I is... believe that Robert Redford in real life with no assistance can ride a bicycle. Well, the thing. W- but can Paul Newman? The thing with the <laughs> Paul current... Newman had to be puppeteered by dozens of by men. a crane. You people are <laughs> such silly rascals. I'm trying to talk about the frog riding a bicycle. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. I'll straighten up. I mean, it's it. Let's get serious. It is, it is this well-known sort of feat of special effects. It's it is this like wow, how did they do it moment, and what what i was really thinking about today is is that is a pure intellectual kind of argument for something that just works intuitively in the movie and it's another thing that i was thinking about in terms of like as an adult versus as a kid i had to be taught that it was remarkable that he was riding a bike yeah like it's not a, it's not a show-offy moment it's just it's almost a sort of santa claus is real thing spoiler alert for your child listeners is is Jim Henson is just kind of casually creating this space to kind of extend the concept of magical thinking for kids. Like, it's no big deal. If if he kind of made a big deal out of it of like, wow, how is that frog riding that bike? Then kids would think about it, but they don't. And it's just he allows for the world to be open to frogs riding bikes for a little bit longer for kids. And I think that's just neat. And it's, it, it's an amazing extension of, of suspension of disbelief because you either come in already loving Kermit um, and seeing Kermit riding a bike is you're just like, oh, this is really cute. Uh, and you don't think about it anymore. Um, or um, you are uh, new to this. You're just getting to learn to know Kermit. And then you see this feat of animation that somehow speaks to the character's worldview and how the, how the character interacts with the world around him. And then they make a special effect sequence about it that will, uh, kick off the theme of Kermit being abused by everyone around him. Um, and uh, you you still don't think about it. And it's like how the suspension of disbelief works. You accept that he's a cartoon frog. You don't have to ask like, well, how did they manage to make that, that uh, you know, puppet frog actually move? And then, yeah, you have to, somebody has to be like, hey, that was like actually something that like people yelled at each other about and had like, uh, had to move budget around presumably to make work and like took longer than they expected they set aside a certain number of hours or days to shoot and 
<laughs> so if you read and the the crazy part about it is that like if you read contemporary reviews at the time, it was not it was treated like the opening shot of Star Wars with the two spaceships or like the first time you see Christopher Reeve uh, Reeves fly in Superman. But even more than that, where it's they didn't just treat it as like an amazing special effects shot. They treated it like how like a fucking pen and teller. Like, how did you do this magic trick? Like, none of this makes sense. And um, I only recently found out how they how they did it, uh, which was like a uh, a crane marionette, um, which sounds insane. But like when people saw this, you're right, Ethan. Like when I saw it in 1993, the concept that like this was something special didn't connect with me because I had probably seen versions of this level of like, oh yeah, of course, of course, he's a he's a he's Kermit the Frog. Why couldn't he ride a bike? And not realizing also and. I just found this out researching this movie for this podcast. Apparently, this is the first instance ever of a puppet on screen uh, not showing its its like limbs, but showing it doing some level of motion in full body without a puppeteer visibly present, which means that like this wasn't just impressive that like oh this made him ride a bike that this really was the first time anyone had ever seen something like this and then i love that then in the the follow-up movie the great muppet caper if that is the direct follow which i think it is uh they then have like 25 muppets riding bikes at one point oh that's in takes that's in takes Manhattan. i believe it's in caper isn't it well, i think it's in takes <laughs> um, oh, regardless, it is it is a serious two flex. white guys are gonna argue about a muppet movie all i want to say is that it's a flex <laughs> to take a walk on jim henson's part that i deeply respect uh yeah and, uh the one in either of those movies um uh i think uh <laughs> uh, uh, but they've said like they have never I'll come back in 30 minutes just, and see where you're you at just look, you can just look it I up am on the, uh, I am on the bicycles page of the Muppet wiki so we'll do <laughs> that part is crazy and um, uh, Frank Oz has said that he won't reveal how they did that um, that it is it was different than what they had to do in the Muppet movie with the crane because you couldn't have that many people on bikes with all those different strings so uh, right. I, and, I and don't actually, think if I could directly quote frank oz the quote is that's why we have a whole bicycle parade in caper oh is it in caper i mean i don't want to flex on you bro but yes (laughs) there is a bicycle scene Um, all right well i'm wrong then ethan does that mean that you have to adopt his children and he has to go live in the woods i know it's it's i hate that i have to do it to you but you doubled down and i just i had to go to muppets.wikia or whatever Don't worry, you guys talk for a while while I try to prove that I'm also right. Yes. <laughs> the fact that they could have gotten away with just shooting Kermit from the waist up riding a bicycle, which would have been plenty charming. Um, and, and then they were like, all right, we're not just going to do that. We're also going to do this whole like special effects sequence and where the bike is about to get crushed by two pieces of heavy machinery and uh and then uh you see kermit comes out on top and then kermit cracks a pretty good one-liner it was like it's pretty dangerous to build a road in the middle of the road um (laughs) um, it's it's just like that is the movie in an in a nutshell uh the 
the movie being effortlessly uh effortlessly impressive uh with an art, true artist hand and then uh maintaining a sort of like happy dignity uh a simple dignity throughout um i just feel i feel like it's it, not just as a special effects like cool little thing trick they did yeah but, like it speaks to what the movie is it speaks to who kermit is yeah and they also have a lot of other moments where they try to show like action of um a puppet like as a as a full body doing things like um throughout the movie uh and i think they're they're relatively successful there's not that much like when kermit and fozzy are dancing at the bar um, like it, it looks all pretty good, but yeah, it's hard to match the, um, the majesty of that, of the bicycle riding. Uh, and, and again, uh, not just the majesty, the, the humbleness of just like, yeah, he's just riding a bike. It's not a big show. It's not a big fight scene with Miss Piggy kicking or a big dance number where they're trying to save the day. He's just getting, getting to town. Um, I also love that I, I totally I totally know what you mean about the majesty of that shot. And I'm also thinking about just how you know that this is three guys who are just dorks for the whole concept of movies. If I'm just imagining showing that shot to my wife and saying, do you see the simple, humble majesty of this image? <laughs> <laughs> and she would say, so uh, when, we were, when, we t- when we took a little break. Ethan reminded me that this is basically the podcast version of, and I guess it'll be like that all month, but probably especially with this movie, the Onion article, (laughs) I appreciate the uh, Muppets on a deeper level than you. (laughs) (laughs) So could I, could I bring something up? That yeah. is, I feel like we're getting to sort of the, the been recording for about two hours loopiness point of, of this show. The thing that, I still sort of it's not a problem but it's just always striking to me is how deeply unintuitive Doc Hopper's whole deal is in a movie <laughs> that is it is so sort of archetypal straightforward road movie the villain's plot is that he wants the hero to be the spokesman for his line of fast casual frog restaurants <laughs> <laughs> which just like that fits into zero archetypes ever it presumes a world where we all want to eat frogs a lot more than we do and it all works into the fabric of this crazy movie but i have just never been able to sort of square the rest of the movie with how bizarre that concept is the only thing that i could think of is if you flip the movie on its head kermit goes to hollywood in the first 15 minutes and then uh, a producer, an agent, it could be Dom DeLuise, it could be whoever, is trying to get Kermit to sell his soul for fame and riches. And then he's pursuing him around Hollywood as Kermit goes on adventures uh, in Hollywood. Um, and, and then at the end, Kermit finds a way to, you know, make everyone happy, but without selling out who he really is. Like, that's the only other archetype I could see that, that, that fitting into. But instead, it's like, Kermit, I know you want to go to Hollywood and get rich and fame. But what if I offered you a deal where you get to be um, a uh, a woman anchor on Fox News and just sell your soul to for like some cash, some quick money? Which is it's it's going to be a rate of five hundred dollars a year. We learn in the movie. <laughs> it is probably the only um, major classic movie that's about someone trying to get a licensing deal done um, and failing. <laughs> 
Um, well, and so much because that's that's ultimately what he's right. Right? He's like, I want to use your image for till I want to license out the image of Kermit the Frog. Which I guess the sad code of that is that I guess Doc Hopper won in reality. Um, well, but the whole thing is, bit. it's I, I am already a rich and successful businessman, but I am not a good on camera talent. So I want and and <laughs> as a kid, I, I don't even know where this happened in the ensuing years. Watching this recently, I had remembered it being he wants to cook and eat Kermit because he has very large legs, yeah. which makes a certain degree of sense. But it's just even yeah. more sort of Byzantine for it to be, you can stay alive. You just have to be in commercials for me as the villain's no. plot. It's weird. To sell more. But like also, Either way, the, I'm selling frog legs. Yes. But the only reason you wouldn't think this man wants to kill and cook Kermit, this doesn't make sense, uh, is because you would have adult concerns like... The amount of guys and, and and road time he's got going on, just just the cost of uh, you know gas in following Kermit everywhere. He could he could buy a thousand frogs. <laughs> he could buy a hundred thousand frogs. I don't know how much a frog costs, but I presumably less than this. Uh, like if you apply it, you would have to apply adult logic to make that not make sense, which is kind of. It's really elegant that the movie dances back and forth between he wants to kill Kermit or convert him to yeah. be a marketing cause. Yeah, it is. It is a little odd in that, like, I just think his whole marketing strategy is bad because, like, the idea that, like, a frog that you learn to love because of his musical ability and his comedy timing is going to make you more likely to eat frogs seems like a totally total misreading of the marketplace. Like, KFC doesn't have a fun chicken character. Chester, in fact, Chester Fried Chick-fil-A yeah, has the opposite. <laughs> Chester Fried Chicken. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What is Chester Fried Chicken? You get it at gas stations. That's all I know. Oh, well, they don't have to market. <laughs> that's just based on, like, desperate things. Yeah. Like, oh, I see a cartoon chicken. I need chicken. But, like, he's literally planning to. He goes, I want a frog that can sing and dance. So, ideally, it's not just a logo. I suppose it's a whole campaign where you fall in love with the frog and then eat his friends. And and, and Chick-fil-A did the opposite where they have cows specifically advertising you'd eat chicken. Yeah, that's weird. So I want to uh, now argue against my own point, though, which is that if, if the bad guy wanted to just kill the good guy, that would be easy but have no real thematic resonance. And what this is in its sort of counterintuitive Byzantine way is – the the story sort of forcing Kermit to prioritize his morals. I mean, it's it is it is just the dark version of the sort of rich and famous route. Is will you sell out your species to be rich and famous, or are you going to risk potentially not becoming rich and famous because you have have values? And you know, in that bizarre way, it it, it does feel more sort of earned and resonant than it it would if it was the classic it's wily coyote thing it's more reflective of the stability of kermit than any dramatic sort of conflict because kermit is tempted for roughly a quarter of a second when the guy float <laughs> throws out all that cash and then uh fozzy is very tempted yeah, it's, re it's really the last temptation of kermit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he needs a fantasy sequence where he does do it. Um, yeah, he 
Kermit just goes out in the swamp and just starts eating other frogs. Uh, he fucks Doc Hopper. Um, <laughs> and his assistant. And his assistant. Um, but no, no, no. Um, the fucking... Um, I don't think it's like a dramatically interesting thing. Like what, what will Kermit do? Because you know, Kermit's always going to do the right thing. And that in, in its own way, having someone constantly trying to test Kermit and yet Kermit's just like, Hey, um, please leave me alone. Please leave me alone. I'm trying to go to Hollywood. Like that's, that's, (laughs) I always forget that. I always forget that Peter can do a good Kermit impression. It's going to be a fun, it's going to be a fun month. I can do, I can do a few different Muppets, but it's hard to find a context where it's not deeply annoying. Um, (laughs) Um, so but yeah, you know what I'm saying. I, I, like, I don't think it's that dramatically yeah. interesting, but I do think that it, it is a nice uh, mirror to reflect who Kermit is, especially for someone that maybe didn't watch the show. So I, I actually think his point at the end, like, so that he, when he does confront Doc Hopper and gives that speech, like, I honestly think that that what he is saying in that moment is like enough to hang an entire ethics system on and like should be considered the golden rule because his point is to doc hopper that i have a you do have a dream like your dream however doesn't take into account my dreams your dream doesn't just impact what you want to be it affects other people negatively so your dream is not like a pure true you know dream that that isn't um, doesn't have all these negative connotations. It doesn't cause harm. Your dream is bad, and my dream that I am pursuing, which is a noble goal, is a noble thing to pursue, is is not negatively impacting anyone else. As a matter of fact, other people have seen that this is a positive dream that I want to go enrich the world by bring happiness and have of their own volition join me and that dream to, you know, kind of create a group of people that share a dream. And I really think like that's like that's essentially all you need to go through life doing good and not harm. Like what is it that I want in my life? And then going how does that negatively impact people? If it does negatively impact people, then what I want in life is bad and is harmful. And if what I want in life is only impacting me and the way that it could um, impact other people is bringing joy, but it doesn't brush up against what they want in their life, like, that's that's a good thing. That is a worthy pursuit. And I love, like, that's why I said earlier, like, it's not that this movie has a ton of these, like, wholesome lessons that it delivers, but the one it does is, like, so fucking insightful and resonant and, like, and, and described in a way that, like, yeah, kids can watch that and go, oh, I see the problem here. What he wanted – it's not bad to want things. It's not bad to have dreams. It's not bad to pursue goals. But he wasn't taking into account other people's, like, hu- and another person's, ironically, like, humanity um, and what they wanted in their life when he was accounting for those those dreams. Yes, Aaron, I think that's I think that's a tremendous point. Actually, it really points us towards the the end. And that's that um, uh, I feel like that is that has guided me through life and has kept has been me at my happiest, which is yeah. um, keeping a sense of levity about what life truly is and, and, ke- and keeping a sense of um, uh, perspective. Um, but also like when the time comes to not just treat everything as this like ironic cynical joke, right? Like this is not the, there are genuine things that you need to stand up for and, and things you need to, um, even if it's, it risks embarrassing yourself and risks, uh, 
that precious, precious irony shield that you you stand behind. Um, it, it, sometimes that shield needs to be shattered so you can actually like stand on your own two feet and say like, this is what I believe. This is who I really am. And like, I, uh, I feel like with the show, we've been trying to be as like sincere and honest as we can about our feelings and like make, make, uh, make jokes about this stuff, but also like, I'm not going to pretend, we're not going to pretend like something isn't uh, problematic or troubling just because like, it would be easier for us to just be, uh, operate at an ironic distance. And, and I love that. I think this month is going to be a great celebration of that sort of ethos and take us to some, some fun places. Um, and I'm really glad we kicked it off with the actual like first movie because I think I needed a reminder on like Jim Henson at his purest still pitching America on what the fuck the Muppets are <laughs> and, and, yeah. and where they could go as opposed to, you know, 20 years on the line. Still great stuff, but they're kind of... Um, it's sort of a reflection of, of what the Muppets are, as which can be great. Like Muppet Christmas Carol is the best one, the, probably the best uh, iteration of all this. But it is fun to jump to like what what was Jim actually trying to get at in its uh, in arguably its purest form. So yeah, and and really quick before we wrap up, just because I know we we need to, I do I I would be remiss if I didn't mention just a couple very quick moments that I fucking love, which is uh yeah the whole like. Uh, I don't think these are Presbyterians and then reading the script to recap when they get to the church where the um, Electric Mayhem is playing. I love that during the Moving Right Along song, which is uh, would be the best song in this movie if it wasn't for Rainbow Connection. I love that they run into Big Bird, which as a kid, <laughs> I actually thought it was like a cinematic crossover with Follow That Bird, which we'll talk about later this month because he's walking down the road and it kind of blew my mind. Uh, it wasn't until much later I realized this came out four years before um steve martin is extremely good uh in this uh, as the playing i guess a character that he had played in like uh in like whatever the equivalent of ucb was as like this very like sarcastic waiter but it's very very good here. he is the the um, cameo who kind of like sticks around lands. the longest and i mean yeah. one who is completely immaterial to the plot as opposed to um like mel brooks who is really kind of playing a character in the story steve martin yeah. is just like now let's just have the steve martin corner for five minutes and you know, it was one of my favorite parts as a kid oh oh yeah um, I love the, uh, Milton Berle is, uh, who sells him a car is like the only, only honest capitalist where, um, he says the prices on the sticker is the price that you'll pay. And, uh, the, there's a fly swatted onto the, the, the price. So it looks like instead of $1,100, it's a $11 and 95 cents. And he, he honors his promise well, and we, instead we, of suing them into a We didn't even get to talk about poor Sweetums, who is the great tragedy of, of the Muppet movie, who is so excited to come with them that he doesn't say he's going to come with them and then has to chase for the rest of the movie. And, and, you know, still kind of breaks my heart a little bit. Yeah, no, the ending is great when he finally does show up, but he is such a lovable monster. Um, the, my favorite line in the movie, or at least line delivery in the movie, is the uh, after they get Gonzo in the car and he goes, we, Fozzie goes, we picked up a weirdo. <laughs> Maybe I just love the word weirdo or the way that the Muppets say it, but God, that's a good line delivery. Um, last two things. Sorry, I know this is rapid fire. Um, the uh, 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 oh. The Miss Piggy Kermit stuff, 
always my least favorite as a kid. Uh, still my least favorite part of any Muppet thing as an adult. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, dynamics in play now that are also kind of not that great. But, like, it is also, like, the least interesting. Like, I don't need two Muppets. Like, Gonzo and it, being in love with chickens is, like, appropriately weird and zany and Muppety. Like, I never needed the a romantic, a continually romantic plot that goes with Piggy and Kermit. And I think it's the weakest part about the Muppets and Muppets take Manhattan. And like, it is the thing that is the least interesting to me. And it, it, and it also kind of just uh, sucks because like the, I know they're Muppets, but obviously Miss Piggy is very much coded to be the female Muppet. And her entire uh, arc is constantly about being in love and obsessed with, with Kermit. So that sucks. Uh, it always sucked. It sucked as a kid. It was boring. It sucks as an adult for different reasons. And finally, the last thing I'll say is that the ending song, which I feel like gets forgotten, uh, even by me, because I always think of it as a reprise of the Rainbow Connection, is actually the moment of the, the movie that I get the most chills when the, when the the set breaks and the music cuts off and Kermit kind of looks in the camera and just starts uh, singing kind of a new song, it feels like. I think the, sh- the song, the full song is called The Magic uh, Shop, which has a reprise of the Rainbow Connection in it. But And then it pans out to reveal what uh, I read is every Muppet they ever created at that point. So about 300 Muppets uh, is just, oh, God, I love that part. So that's a lot really quick. I wanted to make sure we got in as we wrapped up because I fucking love this movie. Me too. I'm, I'm thinking about the magic store now, which is it, it is the closing song and one that kind of struck me tonight even more than it did just, you know, a month or so ago when I watched this. It, it is this sense that, you know, that that celebration of, of that sort of core Muppet spirit of it's all just about putting on a show and putting on a show not for your own benefit, but, f- you know, not not for your own glory, but to create joy in others and sort of the message of, of that little song. That's not particularly sort of earwormy or, or sort of, you know, hummable, but the message is if you are also somebody who, you know, likes to put yourself on display because you believe it's, it's going to help somebody else get through their day, you know, You've got a friend in us to uh, to crib from another. Um, yeah, yeah, keep, yeah, keep keep on dreaming, keep pretending. Uh, you know, we did just what for we the lovers, set out to the do, dreamers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for all the lovers, the dreamers. Uh, any other final thoughts? I love Paul Williams' cameo in the movie oh, as, yeah. as the piano player at the beginning. Um, not one of the showier cameos, and and you wouldn't know it was anybody sort of notable if you don't know what Paul Williams looks like. But once you know what Paul Williams looks like, you're not going to miss him. There's not many movies that put him front and center. I mean, Phantom of the Paradise is notable, but... Uh... Well, it's because he himself is is basically like just a walking sight gag. But that's all Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's someone who uh, had the voice of an angel and, and, and a wonderful, beautiful mind and like in interviews and the way he talks about the creative process and people being inspired by his work is just like it's it's um, it's just it's it's potent stuff. Right. It, it helps you see your your own performance, your own um, 
It helps you see your own uh, artistry in a better context. It helps you see um, fame in a different context that like people don't have to be shitty and, and cynical about all this stuff. And uh, he's just like a very interesting, fun guy. But like he's just he's goofy looking, especially that long mop of hair yeah. like is uh it, it uh it's a great it's a great little moment because i got so excited to see him especially uh after watching phantom of the paradise again very recently and i was like oh he's not playing the fucking devil got it uh yeah um no he's and uh i love seeing him i think i already mentioned baby driver it's so fun to see him in there too uh but yeah this uh this he he hosts him, uh, an episode of the muppet show which i would seek out if you have it as well it's really really good um and yeah it's it's crazy how uh integral he was to that kind of idea you have of the muppets and like i said i forget if i said this on our break or not but like yeah as a kid i I thought jim henson wrote it why wouldn't i think that and uh, instead it's this this wonderful musician who was able to encapsulate uh the, the the ethos of the muppets in in song form for this movie yeah, there there is a synthesis between the worldview of sort of both of those voices that is that is really special and rare. Yeah. Uh, well, if you've liked us talking about the Muppets, great news! More to come uh, next week. Uh, next week we have the Muppets with Douglas Lamont. Uh, we have Sesame Street presents Follow That Bird with Kermit the Frog and his day job as a news anchor uh, with uh, Joey Lee, and then wrapping it up with. Uh, uh, a little-known uh, famous writer-director um, named Ethan Warren to talk about Muppet Christmas Carol. Ethan, do you have anything to promote? Well, like I mentioned, um, a lot of my sort of effort and attention these days is going to uh, Brightwall Dark Room, which is a site that I have been lucky enough to be writing for for a little over two years now. And uh, last year came on board as an editor and, and am now... Uh, working as a senior editor and and sort of, you know, (laughs) putting any of my time that is not uh, devoted to uh, my my kids and my family uh, is kind of going to that. And I'm really proud of the work we're doing and and continuing to grow. So if you are interested in, uh, you know, talking about movies that kind of the way we do on this show and and you do and I do sometimes (laughs) on this show, you know, the the sort of sense that... um, it matters less sort of the, the topicality and the recency of the movie and, and more sort of the passion that, that you have for whatever random thing you want to talk about. I mean, we've, we have published stuff on once upon a time in Hollywood and weekend at Bernie's too, you know, both with sort of the same (laughs) reverence and, uh, and, you know, we sort of believe in, in the idea that there's no, no divide between high art and low art. There's just art. And, and we're entirely, um, ad free and and supported just by subscribers so if uh you're out there listening to this and haven't heard of brightwalldarkroom.com uh i would encourage you to check it out because uh you know it, it is a cool place that i feel lucky to have have discovered and now get to be a part of uh yeah and anytime i've read one of ethan's articles anytime i see him pop up when uh, he shares them on twitter or anything like that it is always a joy uh always a joy to read um yeah you're right like the subjects you you write about and i know the the magazine uh the website as a whole uh write up writes about as always um really uh it, it does feel like the spiritual successor in a way to the solve which is where a lot of us met um absolutely but you, yeah. i mean it was huge huge inspiration for i know uh you know the the crew that that formed <laughs> Brightwall dark room long before i was part of it but yeah 
Yeah, and it is like one of those things where all of a sudden you'll get an article on uh, whatever their up recent movie is, and then all of a sudden you'll see, oh, Ethan wrote about American movie. I did. Uh, I want to read that right <laughs> away. So, uh, which was which was like kind of the magic of all of of the best film websites, including the one that kind of uh, in the ashes birthed this podcast. So, highly recommended. We'll have a link to all of Ethan's writing in the show notes, and as he. Mentioned before, Westifer apparently available as a Hallmark original on YouTube, but also you can watch it on Amazon Prime and all the other or, uh, uh, digital digital uh, rental services. Yeah, yeah, uh, I gotta Peter. say, Brightwall uh, Darkroom is some of the best fucking writing on the web, and it's uh, it's always worth your time. It also has really good art that accompanies yeah, the piece. Do. That I'm yeah, always I always uh, spend a. Um, a little too long staring at the arc before diving into the piece. Well, that's that's <laughs> the goal. Yeah, Tony Stella and, and Brianna Ashby are our two regular uh, contributors, and, and it's just mind-blowing the stuff they, they put together. Yeah, no, it's it's great work, and I'm so happy we get to talk to you again uh, in a couple weeks for the listener and in a couple months for, for uh, in reality time, so... <laughs> Whatever that fucking means. It is the end of the night. So, yes. So, uh, for all of you listening, someday we'll find it a good way to end the show. But for now, I hope you all have a very good night. Good night. Good night. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, but only illusions, and rainbows have nothing to hide. So we've been told and some... Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. <laughs>